Yep. How's that volume? That's good. Yep. All right. So before I start my talk, I have to tell you that I have worn thick bottle cap eyeglasses since I was two years old, and I'm 59. And over the last months, I have had cataract surgery in both eyes, and they put plastic lenses inside my eyes to give me close to 20-20 vision for the first time in 57 years. And I don't understand how that works, and I keep wondering where my glasses are. But now I need dollar store reading glasses because I can no longer read with my new eyes. So it's all a little confusing. I'm in my second week like this of my life. So I'm going to put these on so that I can look at my speech, but now you're all blurry. So just to let you know that. And um, I normally give a speech from an outline. I give talks all over the country and workshops all over the country. Um, and I was going to do that here, and then this morning, for whatever reason, I realized I wanted to write a short speech to all of you, and so I did. Um, so here it is. We're going to spend about 20 minutes. Um, should take me about 20 minutes to share this speech with you. And then we're going to have about 20 minutes, I understand, for questions and answers and comments. And Kathy, wherever you are, I can no longer see anybody. Uh, hi there. Is there a possibility of a second mic for people in the audience who want to say something? It's a little late for me to ask that question, isn't it? Um, the best thing is to just repeat the question. Okay. So people can maybe stand up and speak loudly when you speak so others can hear you as well. <clears throat> so apologies for the new eye thing. That's like a week or two old in my whole life. It's very surreal, but kind of wonderful too. Thank you all for inviting me to such a wonderful event today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And especially thank you to Kathy Van Maren, who's done so much of the organizing work for both today's event and also for the Community Rights Introductory Workshop that I'll be leading tomorrow afternoon at your local food co-op from 2 to 5, which is free, donations welcome. Although I have never led a workshop or talk in La Crosse before today, I am not at all a newcomer to your area. Since 2013, I have been crisscrossing the Driftless region every couple of months including the community rights, introducing the community rights movement strategy to people in Gaze Mills and Viroqua and Sparta and Toma and Eau Claire and Whitehall and Ettrick and Winona and Decorah and Wakan and literally a dozen more communities beyond that. I'm here today to provoke you to think about your own local activism and to ask you whether it is as effective as it could be in this crisis moment that we find ourselves in, in 2018, not only with a scary guy in the White House, but also a fast-growing climate crisis, and healthcare crisis, and agricultural crisis, and energy crisis, and safe water crisis, etc., etc. No shortage of crises swirling around us these days, so it's more important than ever that our own activism is as impactful as it can be. We in the community rights movement believe that we the people would be so much more impactful in our activism if we understood that our mostly single issue, 
mostly crisis response focus is never actually going to tackle the larger structural problems that make these single issue crises inevitable. So what I'm going to say to you today in the short amount of time that I have might make you feel somewhat uncomfortable, but I hope it will be a useful kind of uncomfortable. Here are three examples of the kinds of activism many of us are involved in, not just here in the room, but around the US. Number one, when we work on climate issues, how many of us realize that the problem is as severe as it is? Because we the people have been allowing the fossil fuel industry executives to be making the primary policy decisions that impact all life on the planet. We the people allow the industry to decide which energy sources will be prioritized for investment and which will be left to wither on the vine. Oil and gas pipelines, we let the corporate leaders decide. New mining operations, we let the corporate leaders decide. We the people of frac sand mining, same thing. We the people rarely if ever question why our laws even allow these energy policy decisions to be made by the fossil fuel corporations and not by the people we elect who are accountable to us. And now why is that? How many of us even realize that corporations have that ability because the Supreme Court has granted actual decision-making authority to corporations as a corporate constitutional so-called property right? Here's a second example. When we work on campaigns to help elect good, conscientious people to public office, how many of us realize that the problem is as severe as it is because we the people have been allowing large corporations to interfere in our elections for a very long time? We the people allow corporations to fund candidates, to lobby our elected officials, and to lie to the public when their trade associations publish dishonest information to quote unquote educate us about various issues. We the people rarely if ever question why our laws even allow corporations to participate in the political process in the first place. And how many of us realize that corporations have that ability because the Supreme Court has granted First Amendment free speech rights to corporations? as a corporate constitutional right. And here's one final example. When we work on agricultural issues, because we care so deeply about food being grown in a way that supports human health, maintains our topsoil, doesn't deplete or contaminate our groundwater and surface <coughs> waters, how many of us realize that we've got so many agricultural crises all over the country because we the people have been allowing the agricultural industry executives and pesticide industry executives to be making the primary policy decisions about what foods will be grown, using which agricultural techniques, and which pesticides and herbicides to be applied to which crops. And because we the people allow these executives to decide whether cows and pigs and chickens will be raised on the land or in giant factory warehouses. These decisions are not made by our accountable elected officials. Now why is that? 
I could list many more examples, such as the rapid shift towards self-driving trucks and all of the other automation changes that will put literally tens of millions of drivers and other people out of a job in the next 10 years. Who is making those decisions? Corporate leaders, not elected officials, not us. Think about all of the policy decisions that are made every day that impact all of us. All of those decisions being made by corporate boards of directors, not by the people who we elected to serve us, not directly by we the people. In every one of these examples and many more, we have allowed our corporate business structures to exercise their constitutional so-called rights in such a way as to ensure that in this democratic republic, corporations now have more constitutional rights than do you or I. They can exercise their free speech rights, their property rights, their right to a jury trial, their right to privacy, their right of religious freedom, and on and on and on. So, what can be done? I'm firmly convinced that the community rights movement has found the key to beginning to successfully dismantle corporate rule in this country, first at the town and city and county level and then working our way up to the state and federal level. Since 1999, we have assisted about 200 communities and counties in nine states to rein in corporate power through an ingenious new kind of lawmaking that we call rights-based lawmaking. It's a new paradigm kind of lawmaking that requires serious culture shift. This is no longer on, is it? Is it? It's not on. Yeah? Is the on button still on? Yep. The on button is still on. Now, I think I heard it again. Good? I'm back on? No, it's not. No. Okay. Who knows? What I'm suggesting is not easy work, because we the people have become so brainwashed about our own powerlessness that we now believe that our primary power is as consumers who vote with our dollars, and there really isn't much we can do about the corporations that are harming us entirely legally every day across our country. So a major part of our work as community rights teachers and organizers is helping people to do something we refer to as decolonizing our minds, which is something that Black Lives Matter has been helping white people to do, those who are willing to pay attention. And the Me Too movement has been helping women and men to decolonize our minds around what's going on around rape culture, etc. Allow me to explain by first reading to you some brief excerpts from our own state constitutions. As I read these words to you, I want you to close your eyes and imagine what it might look like, what it might feel like, for you to fully embody the power and authority that everyone in this room possesses, but may not know that you possess. Here is Section 1, Article 1 of the Wisconsin State Constitution, Declaration of Rights. All people are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's the key sentence. 
To secure these rights, governments are instituted deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Do you feel like, the, like you, there is consent of the governed at this point in the United States? And not just under Trump. Did you feel like it was there under Obama, under Clinton, under Bush? Was there really consent of the governed around air and water and climate, right, and safe food? Here's Minnesota's state constitution. Article 1, Bill of Rights, Section 1, Object of Government. Government is instituted for the security, benefit, and protection of the people in whom all political power is inherent. Together with the right to alter, modify, or reform government whenever required by the public good. Isn't that interesting? Government is instituted for our protection among the people who, whom all political power is inherent. And the people together have the right to alter, modify, or reform government whenever required by the public good. Imagine if we internalized that and started acting as if we understood what that looked like. And here's Iowa's um, second paragraph, Article One, Bill of Rights, Section 2, Political Power. All political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for the protection, security, and benefit of the people. And they have the right at all times to alter or reform the same whenever the public good may require it. And that kind of language exists in every state constitution. It is one of the last remnants of the American Revolution. And we forget that language at our peril. Now, I posted on the wall over on the two posts and on that distant wall in the corner you see all the little gold sheets of paper that are hanging, and then there's a string and something's hanging down from them. I posted these a few hours ago. Every one of these is a local law that has either passed or is in the process of being organized in a town or a city or a county somewhere in the United States. These are actual community rights ordinances or local laws from all over the country on a variety of topics. What you will notice if you check out these ordinances is that they all contain three central features. And this is the tactic that the community rights movement uses to start to take on, to tackle, to begin to dismantle these so-called constitutional rights that the corporations have to cause harm to our human and other natural communities. All of the ordinances that we help communities to pass at the city or town or county level as the first step in dismantling corporate rule. One, the local laws all ban specific corporate activities like frac sand mining or factory farming <coughs> or pipelines or oil trains or aerial spraying of pesticides on forests and farmland and many others. Two, all of these local laws strip corporations of their ability to exercise those so-called constitutional rights, which they use over us, within the boundaries of that town or city or county. And three, they all enshrine the inherent right of that local community to govern itself and to protect its own health, safety, and welfare. 
regardless of what the state claims the local government is allowed to do or not. 200 communities in nine states, and only about 5% of them have ever been brought to court since 1999. It's an extraordinary win, which means that about 190 communities have successfully already used the community rights local ordinance tactic to stop a variety of harmful corporate activities. It's an amazing track record. In the community rights movement, we believe that it's not enough to just regulate corporate behavior, which is what regulatory agencies do, that we must learn to prohibit those corporate behaviors that are simply too harmful to people and nature to allow at all. Tomorrow, as it was already said, I'll be leading a three-hour introductory community rights workshop from two to five in your local food co-op. By donation, no one turned away. In Toma, same workshop, February 22nd. It's a Thursday from six to nine. I hope you can find time to come to one or the other to find out more about how your community can benefit from this very effective local rights-based strategy and start to more effectively deal with local threats to communities and to the natural world, be they factory farms, frack sand mines, pipelines, high voltage power lines, hog slaughterhouses, or the myriad of other atrocities that corporate leaders continue to dream up. And what's so fascinating to me, that I think really important <coughs> for single issue activists to start thinking about is to ask yourself the question, why is it that all the things that corporations do that we're trying to stop are all activities that are protected by law, and all the things that we're doing to try to stop these corporations from harming us, to a large degree, our work violates the law. Our work violates their rights. Our work to try to stop these corporate harms violates the state's preemption authority over our local governments. So as long as we the people in our local communities are not asking our question, the question, why is our local activism working against the legal system? Why is the legal system not here to represent us? Right? And most of our single issue activism across the country still so far is not asking that fundamental question. It's literally illegal in the United States today for a city or town or county government to pass a law that bans a harmful corporate activity. It's illegal. It's literally illegal. So basically what you're saying is it's illegal for a local government to pass something that brings us a higher level of ecological, economic sustainability, more social justice, if the law that we're trying to pass is prohibited under state preemption rules, which it usually is, or is prohibited by corporations claiming constitutional rights, which have been granted to them through the Supreme Court of the United States, starting all the way back 198 years ago in 1819. So the structures of law that are in place operate in such a way to make whatever corporate leaders want their institutions to do fully legal and protected, whereas us trying to stop harmful corporate activities 
has no protection in the legal system. And as long as we don't ask ourselves why that is and how can we change that system of law, we're going to be pushing boulders uphill for the rest of our activist lives. And that's a real problem. And the community rights movement is about dismantling those structures of law that violate our rights as the people, as the sovereign people. Um, so I just want to close, and because I, I want to leave lots of time for, for conversation, I just want to close by again encouraging you in a little bit of time that exists once we're done to look at some of these ordinances. I have books for sale about our work. I have handouts that are available for any kind of donation, um, books and CDs, and what else? And I'm going to be at the, I think it's a brew pub, right? Tonight, Brick House, to continue the conversation. Um, so feel free to contact me by phone or email at any time. My flyer's on the table. I'm at your service. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be happy to answer your questions. And now I can actually see you without my glasses. Crazy. So who has a comment or a question and time check how we're doing? Terrific. Terrific. Okay. That was my goal, to keep it really short. Who has a comment or a question? And um, speak up and speak less. Stand up and speak loudly. Nobody. Yes. So I've, I've heard a rumor, uh, can you hear me at all? Yes. I've heard a rumor of a, a strategy where environmentalists will like incorporate a, uh, a lake or a fountain or something uh, to, in order to give it like corporate rights, which are apparently higher than any other rights in the United States. Um, is that something that you talk about or know about? Is that something that people do? Is that effective? Um, I'm guessing that you're slightly off on what you're talking about. What is happening in a number of countries, starting in Ecuador in 1998, is that communities are granting enforceable rights of nature to lakes, to rivers, to ecosystems. Um, is that possibly what you're thinking of? I've never heard of natural bodies being incorporated as corporations. I think I've heard of person. That's news to me. Yeah, I mean, there are, uh, Australia has recently granted um, person, yeah, personhood as a natural body with constitutional protections to a river in Australia. Ecuador has done the same thing with the Vilcabamba River in Ecuador. And in fact, the Supreme Court has already, <coughs> has already heard at least one federal case where the river was had standing in the court to sue a county government that had built a road illegally along the river and had seriously harmed the flow of the river. And the Supreme Court um, decided on the side of the river against the county government in Ecuador. Um, so it, the law is already working as it, as it was designed to. Giving understanding, recognizing rights of natural objects. Um, in the United States, of the 200 communities in nine states that have already passed community rights ordinances, which, by the way, the vast majority are rural conservative communities. This is not a progressive movement. This is a very nonpartisan movement. It doesn't really matter if you're a real rural conservative or a 
an urban, more liberal person, you still care about the essential right to have safe water in your community, to have breathable air in your community, to have food grown that's safe, et cetera, et cetera, to have a livable climate. So these are not left versus right. And in this country, about 30 of those 200 local laws have included clauses recognizing that nature has enforceable rights. In fact, in most of those 30 communities, um, it was passed by Republican rural voters or by local elected officials. So the idea that, these, that this is a progressive notion is simply not true if you frame it around the local right to clean air, clean water, safe food, etc. Can you, you stand up and speak loud? So you said earlier that passing a law banning a corporate activity is illegal. It is. That's what these ordinances are. These are ordinances doing. challenge that. So are these ordinances. These are local. Illegal? Are these ordinances technically illegal? These, these ordinances are technically illegal. I like to say they're not legal yet. Um, you would be surprised, though, how common it is that people pass laws that are illegal. The entire medical marijuana movement is a couple dozen states through the ballot box. Voters in like 26 or 28 states at this point have passed rights to medical marijuana, which are illegal under federal preemption law. So All of those are illegal ordinances. But the public, the, the voters, have overpowered the federal preemption simply through putting it on the ballot and passing it. So they're on the books in dozens of states. They are illegal under federal law. So um, recently at our city council, there was a conversation about resisting a corporate activity that was going to be happening in our city. And our city council legal, uh, the that? local attorney for the council, for the, county, yeah. for the city, city. Uh, was really, you know, it's like, uh, they were adamant that you shouldn't. Shouldn't do that because I think for their own personal protection, like, you know, I don't want to be the one who gets in trouble for telling me to do something illegal. So do you have any recommendations yeah. on how to sort of overcome that. So what you've described is is very common across the United States that city and town and county councils always have an attorney on hire to give them legal advice. Those attorneys have been trained to believe that their primary duty is to the fiscal solidity of their community, not to the public will. Right? So that's their training. That anything that might get the city, town or county government sued don't pass it. It'll bankrupt us, it's a crisis, blah, blah, blah. We are a movement of 200 communities where local governments have decided that if our rights to safe, to health, health and welfare at the local level are being so fundamentally violated by these illegitimate structures of law, state preemption and corporate rights and others, that it is their duty as local governments to violate the law in order to change the law, right? That to drive rights of local self-government and protection for local communities into law, and this is actually how the entire history of social change works. If you look at the abolitionists and the suffragists and the American Revolution itself, all of those communities broke the law, those movements broke the law to drive new rights for a new category of, of being into the law. 
right? So black people go from property to person when the abolitionists break the law. Women go from property to at least a voter, not necessarily a full person, when they break the law to win the right to vote, right? Most of what the American Revolution did was illegal against the monarchy. So these are, believe it or not, these are 200 communities where the local elected officials or the voters, in the cases where they ran as ballot initiatives, have decided that it's less scary to break the law and possibly get sued than it is to lose the health and welfare of the community through a frack sand mine, a hog slaughterhouse, a factory farm, a pipeline, etc. So we are a people, and this is part of the colonized mind thing, is that we as a people have become terrified of being sued, and we need to stop being terrified of being sued. Have any of the 200 communities been sued? Yes, a few of them have. About 5% have been sued, which is about 10 total. The most interesting one is currently in play. It's Grant Township, Pennsylvania, population like 700 people, and a fossil fuel corporation, Pennsylvania General Energy, something like that. But actually, the lawsuit is in a book on the table here. Um, is insisting that it, as a corporate person, has the right to dump millions of gallons of toxic water wastewater from fracking sites elsewhere into holes that they're drilling in the ground adjacent to the township's sole water source. And the township's like, no. And they're in this very interesting legal battle, and the township is not stepping down, they're not backing down, they're not, they're, if a loss, there, there have been lawsuits, um, the township's supervisors have incredible backbone. Um, they most recently amended their local law, the, the township did after they were sued a second time, to say, and this is, this is cutting edge in our movement across the country, that if the courts overrule the township's law, the township's government authorizes the public in that township to commit nonviolent direct action to stop the drilling of the wastewater mine as an act of local and legally protected enforcement. So they're redefining nonviolent direct action as enforcement under law guaranteed by the local government, which means that the township and the county's police forces no longer have the authority to arrest those people who are blocking the drilling which forces the state police to come into Grant Township and try to arrest local people who are residents in a township that's already twice voted to ban this harmful corporate activity, right? So we're trying to create, just as the medical marijuana uh, ballot initiatives in 20 plus states have already done, part of what this work is is to create what we call a crisis of jurisdiction so that it's no longer easy for a higher level of government to crush what a community is attempting to do to protect itself. Then all of a sudden, in the marijuana ex example, the federal government can no longer attack individual pot growers or sellers because the state has authorized everything they're doing as legal, so they have to attack the legal system. And you have state versus federal authority, government authority, 
battling it out. Just in this case, you'd have um, the state and local government authorities battling out for, for jurisdictional protection. So it's a little complicated to describe, but that is an essential part of the movement to decolonize our minds around where is our power, right? And constitutionally, we the people have authority, constitutional authority, over all branches of government, over all corporate business institutions. Constitutionally, that's a fact. That's not my wild theory, because all corporations are chartered or incorporated through a state. It's a privilege to incorporate. Corporations then and from the American Revolution to the present time are considered state creations. That makes them subordinates. A state can bring a corporation into existence and it can dissolve one. And that's, there's a whole interesting history that I teach that we take an hour to describe, right? So part of the decolonizing of our minds as citizens is understanding that the government is required to serve us and that corporations have duties and responsibilities to us, again, as our subordinates. That's a long, wordy answer. Yeah. A road that you almost started to go down, and I'd like to kind of show you that road again, because you, you kind of alluded to something that the people on the libertarian side always bring up, and it kind of goes along with where you're going, the, the mantra of local control. The government that's closest to the people is the government that we should listen to. The most, most democratic. Yes. Yet at the same time, right. when the regulations at the local level start to become onerous from the corporate point of view. They start whinging about patchwork quilts of regulations. So there's a there's a hypocrisy and there's a paradox there. You have the same people in one case will say local control, local control, local control. Yet when the locals want to legalize pot, it's like oh no 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 we can't have these regulations. We got to have this one Uber regulation so that we know what we're doing wherever we go. So I think that's something that we can use against the libertarian and anti-regulation side because they are very hypocritical that no, way. I think, I think you're making something a little too monolithic. For example, among conservatives, it tends to be the libertarians who are most involved as leaders in, on the conservative side in community rights lawmaking. Libertarians are big allies in this movement for local protection of health, safety, and welfare. In other words, we may not agree, progressives and libertarians don't agree on a whole variety of things. But, uh, but around this, there's absolute agreement. So our frame is that... But libertarians like to get rid of regulations. They don't like to... You're, you're making it more model... We, we actually want to get rid of regulations and move into prohibitions. Regulations, the environmental movement has come to believe, the labor movement has come to believe that regulatory system of law protects us. But in fact, that's never been the case. The regulatory system of law was designed and created in the 1880s privately between the railroad corporation executives who were the first big corporations in the country's history and the Attorney General of the United States who came together privately to figure out a new system of lawmaking that would shield corporate harms from public outrage while appearing to look like a bold response by government. I'll, I'll actually read you a couple of quotes from the, from the meetings themselves. 
But now I have to put these back on. The Attorney General in the 1880s explained to railroad corporation executives that the first agency, regulatory agency, was, quote, to be a sort of barrier between the railroad corporations and the people. Said Charles Adams, president of Union Pacific Railroad Company, what is needed to solve the railroad corporation's problems is something having a good sound, but quite harmless, which will impress the popular mind with the idea that a great deal is being done, when in reality very little is intended to be done, unquote. The public was to be pacified with laws that sounded tough, but placed much discretion in the hands of regulators. Look at the Department of Energy at the state level, Department of Forestry, Department of Agriculture. What do they do? They're designed to look like environmental protection, right? Renewable energy supporting, etc., etc. But that's the opposite of what they actually do. And we pack regulatory hearings with concerned citizens, and then we watch regulatory directors vote yes to virtually every corporate proposal that's ever been made. On pipelines, on factory farms, you name it, right? So we the people, depending on regulatory agencies, is also part of the problem. Because if you think about it, those directors are not accountable to us. They're not elected by us. And who are they usually? They're usually corporate directors from the industry being regulated. Did you know that? That run most state and federal agencies. So they're in revolving doors with the agency, with the industries that they came from. And the laws themselves, the regulatory laws themselves, are almost always written with the active participation, if not leadership, of the industry being regulated. So we argue in our movement that the regulatory system of law is a corporate structure that makes it impossible for we the people to prohibit harmful corporate activities. So going back to libertarians and regulation, our movement doesn't support regulation. Regulation by definition means to legalize a certain amount of corporate harm that's considered a safe amount of corporate harm parts per million of formaldehyde in the manufacturing process, or parts per million of, of mercury in the bay, right? or, or cost-benefit analysis of how many working people are going to be named on an assembly line. Rather than we the people having authority over corporate decision-making, the authority to say, these activities are so harmful, we're not going to regulate them, we're going to prohibit them. <coughs> so I actually think, and, and it's, I mean, it's among the movements general beliefs that this is an incredibly opportune moment as Trump is dis trying to dismantle the regulatory system of law to say, hey folks, environmentalists, labor activists, social justice activists, did you realize that the regulatory system of law isn't what you think it is? And that in fact we could do a lot better and create agencies that are directly accountable to us, that prohibit harmful activities don't just normalize them. Sorry for that. I keep giving you long answers. Yeah. It's kind of complicated work that we do. Okay, I appreciate all your comments about the first big club. Can you be a little louder? Pardon? Louder? I, I appreciate all your comments about the issue of personhood and all that, but I have a, a, a deeper concern. And I think that's part of our value system. We've always seen nature as a collection of crimes. 
commodities. Right. How do we overcome that? I mean, that is deeply ingrained in our culture, in our economic system. And that's, that's going to take a tremendous paradigm shift to move to something like what Ecuador, right? what Ecuador does in terms of giving nature rights. And I just don't see that happening in this country. Well, I agree that it's huge. It, takes require, it would require a huge culture shift in the United States. But believe it or not, what Ecuador did came directly out of what Republican rural farmers did in Pennsylvania. They actually led the way and were invited to Ecuador by the indigenous leaders to explain what Republican farmers had just passed at the township level in Pennsylvania, in a couple dozen communities that were trying to stop factory farms and sludge dumping on agricultural land and pass prohibitory community rights ordinances that recognized the farmers, these conservative farmers, were, were educated and they recognized that when they understand that their land has rights of nature, that nature has rights to, the language tends to be, to persist, flourish, and evolve, that that actually gives them another very powerful toolbox, tool in their legal toolbox to stop corporations from harming their township or their county. So I absolutely agree with you, it's a huge culture shift, but it's happening already and it's, be, and it's happening in this country through Republican farmers so far. So progressives need to actually catch up. But the problem is that progressives tend to be stuck on the state and federal environmental regulations as, as the solution. And, and that's not a protection, a real protection for the environment at all. Like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act allow an enormous amount of corporate harm to be done. Yeah? Could you comment on the uh, rights of nature in the Ho-Chunk Constitution? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, um, I played a tiny role in what happened that I'm very excited about in Ho-Chunk. Uh, I led a weekend training in a, a Ho-Chunk community center near Black River, Black River, Black River Falls um, two or three years ago that a number of local Native community folks were in attendance at. And some of them brought to their tribal council the idea of amending the Ho-Chunk Constitution to include a whole new section on recognizing nature's rights. Um, I actually have a copy here if you wanted to ask me about it after this Q&A. I could show you what was passed. Um, but it's the first Native nation within the US boundaries to pass uh, a rights of nature section into their own constitution. Is that you want more specific than that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so, part of what you talk about is uh, federal power over state, state power over local, whatever. Um, I'm wondering about the, uh, the words we use and the things, the, the like, our laws and regulations and um, Like ballot initiatives and are all these words for things that control what can and can't happen are some more powerful than others or are they just kind of interchangeable the only word that i just heard you say that i think we need to really critique and question our use of is regulations and regulatory law and to shift more towards what do we want to allow corporations to do and what do we want them not to do and as the sovereign people that needs to be our decision so taking a brief you know, side trip on what I just said, imagine if the people of La Crosse or the people of, of Minneapolis or St. Paul 
or my city of Portland or Viroqua said, what significant things can we prohibit or require for our business corporations to do that would give us a big leap forward in terms of the climate crisis? And I actually gave a speech in Minneapolis a few years ago where I, where I imagined what laws we could pass. For example, our airports are constantly proposing new runways. We could say no more runways. Or we could say, or we could cap the number of flights currently happening at our airports. Or we could say five years from now, the following portions of our town or city will no longer have, be allowed to have cars on the road. Or we're gonna create a whole new transit system that replaces a private car economy. Or on and on and on. We don't actually think what could we do at the local or state level I would argue because our minds are so colonized that we don't think we have any authority. And therefore, we never even move into that conversation in the first place. As the people, we, we spend all of our energy trying to convince the deciders up there somewhere to protect us. Yeah. Um, so I work in the healthcare industry. Um, drug manufacturing is a very highly regularized, uh, regulated. regulated. Regulated industry. Uh, Federal Drug Administration is the controller uh, for that regulation. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that I move from a regulatory structure to a regulatory structure? I'm having a hard time. Do I say I want to prohibit a drug manufacturer from unduly making a profit off of people's ill health? Or do I say I want to prohibit a drug manufacturer from making unsafe drugs. And how does that happen? Um, can you help me? Yeah, I mean, all of this is really complicated. If this could be the last question, that'd be great. Okay. Now, we're just getting warmed up here. We're out of time. Um, do we, the people, want to allow for-profit pharmaceutical corporations to decide what research into new drugs is, in, is funded, or should that be a public decision? Should we, the people, allow pharmaceutical corporations to make whatever profits their directors want them to make, or should we define what their profit margin is for each of their new products, and for how many years they can hold a, a, a patent or whatever that's called to keep generics from, you know, that whole conversation, right? We have a federal government that prohibits itself from negotiating lower drug prices with the industry. And if you think of that in terms of the we the people as the sovereign frame, that is certifiably insane, right? So what would it look like at any level of government to no longer allow corporations to set prices for drugs, right? What would it look like for we the people to require business stru pharmaceutical structures of law, corporations, to do the research that needs to be done, not just the research that they consider highly profitable? At what point do we call medicine a right and not something that is something that, that, you know, or not, it's currently not a right, just like, is food a right? Is housing a right? 
right, etc. Those conversations could be had in lacrosse and in every community, and out of that could come, we could start passing these prohibitions and requirements of our subordinate business structures. So I kind of answered your question, but I kind of sidetracked it. You see what I, but you see what I did? It's, I kind of took a larger frame than, what, than the way that you were framing it. But I think I still kind of addressed it. Yeah? Right, to start thinking about what, are, what, what do we want corporations to do? I'll buy a book. Right? As our subordinates that are required to serve us, what do we want energy corporations to accomplish? What do we want logging corporations to accomplish for us? What do we want agricultural corporations to accomplish for us? Do we allow factory farms? Do we require organic? Do we this? Do we that? See, this is, you notice how different this is than regulating harm? Right? All of a sudden we've shifted as we the people from, you know, what do we think we can get single issue crisis after single issue crisis, and we've, sh we've moved entirely over to what do we need? If we're going to live in a functional democratic culture, what do we the people need? to create an ecologically and economically sustainable and socially just society. What's the bottom line, right? Rather than a, a voluntary code of contact, conduct for corporations, what should be the minimum business standards that all corporations are required to serve so that we don't have this diversion in our heads, Exxon bad, Ben and Jerry's good, right? Then instead we say, and these days, Ben and Jerry ain't good. That instead we say, what should be the minimum standards that all corporations follow, or we revoke their charter and, and dissolve them, right? We have that authority, and the crazy thing is, in, for the first century in the United States, corporations were our subordinates. They were on very short leashes. Their charters were full of requirements and prohibitions. And when they violated those requirements and prohibitions, it was common for their assets to be seized, for the corporations to be dissolved, and sometimes for the directors to be imprisoned criminally. Because in the first century in the United States, the founders actually understood that business corporations had to be our legally subordinated entities. And they had to serve us or they weren't legitimately operating. So we actually have this incredible uh, hidden history that most of us don't know, which is part of what I talk about in my three-hour workshop, in my weekend trainings, which I also do and have done around the region many times. We spend four hours on, on corporate and, and, and legal history in the United States. And we, un we unpack this because if we the people don't even understand the power we did have over this kind of profound decision-making, then how would we ever think that we should have it today? Thank you very much. Thank you. Can we clap a little bit more for this fantastic event? Thank you so much for this. I want to remind you again, if you want to continue this conversation, obviously there was probably some stuff that was still left unsaid. Uh, come on over to the Brick House. Um, we would love a few volunteers again to help us just put the tables back, clean everything up, and get things together so we can join you all at Brick House for some food and drinks and conversation.
flyers, yep, flyers handouts, books, books ordinances all over the walls, gold sheets. Take a look while you can, while things are being cleaned up. Thank you all so much for Thank coming you. too. This can't happen without you guys.